0: Psalm 51 tonight, open your Bibles to Psalm 51, I predict only maybe one more good laugh for the night, but for the rest of the night, dealing with Psalm 51 will be pretty serious as it's a pretty serious psalm. Psalm 51, we're going to read the whole chapter just to get an idea of David's uh, heart's cry. And we're going to deal with only a few verses, maybe five verses out of the text. But I want us to get the context of the chapter. Psalm 51, I'll begin reading in verse 1. Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy lovingkindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned, and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou hast... Thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I'm so thankful that we have a church, Lord, that still believes in meeting on Wednesday night to hear your word preached, Lord, and to get the church family around the book and and be preached to and and hear from you, Lord. Lord, that's what I desire tonight. I desire that uh, Fellowship Baptist Church would hear a word from you, Lord, and not from Tanner Walton. Lord, I need your help tonight. I I need your help to, to calm my spirit, to give me confidence in what I believe that you've given me tonight. And I ask that our hearts and our minds would just be receptive to your word, and that we would leave different people than what we came in to tonight being. Lord, I love you. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We face problems every day, don't we? If you're like me, you like to wake up in the morning and drink a cup of coffee, or seven, you go to your fridge, first you brew your coffee, then you go to your fridge and you grab your creamer, and you notice that it's not as heavy as you thought it would be. There's only enough creamer for one cup, yet you're a three-cup coffee person. That creates a problem, doesn't it? You're going to have to go to the store and get more creamer so you can enjoy your other two cups. That's, that would be the solution. Another problem that I bet parents face, especially parents of two- Plus, kids, is the problem of a nighttime snack. It's around 9 o'clock, you want a nighttime snack, and you think, man, cereal sounds good. Isn't that the best nighttime snack? It is. But then you remember, I've got two, three, maybe four, five kids in the home. I'm probably going to go to the fridge, and there's not going to be any milk. That happens, doesn't it? They drink milk like it's going out of style, and they eat cereal like it's going out of style. That creates a problem. What's the solution? Buying your own mini fridge, and buying your own gallon of milk, and storing it away where your kids cannot find it. That's the solution to the problem. Having families that are pretty spread out, uh, for Taryn and I, it's her family lives in Arkansas and Ohio, my family lives in Texas. So around holiday, uh, season that creates problems for us. Are we going to go to this family for Thanksgiving? Are we going to go to this family for Christmas? What are we going to do? I've talked to my mother yesterday, and I told her, Hey, Mom, we're going to go to Thanksgiving. Uh, we're going to go to Cincinnati for Thanksgiving this year, and we're going to come home for Christmas. And she literally said, That's a problem. Because she's a nurse, and she's a home health nurse, and they have to pick one of the two uh big holidays to not work. And so I previously told her that we would be coming home for Thanksgiving and not Christmas, but yesterday I told her we'd be coming home for Thanksgiving, or for Christmas, not Thanksgiving, and she said that's a problem. So having families spread out all over the place, that creates problems for your family. When you're halfway to work on a Monday morning and you have a tire blowout, or maybe you didn't think because it was Sunday to get gas and your gas-o-meter is on E and you're halfway to work and you come to a sputtering stop. That creates a problem for you, doesn't it? The solution would be to either change a tire yourself or call somebody to bring you gas or call somebody to bring you a tire or call a tow truck and have them tow you to the nearest gas station or tire shop. Those would be your solutions. Unexpected medical bills. Those are problems, aren't they? You're going about your day, you're going about your life, and boom, you have a $5,000 medical bill that you weren't expecting. That's a problem, isn't it? Problems come up in our marriages. Disagreements. Arguments. Preferences. One of the problems that Taryn and I face quite frequently is when I shut the microwave, I don't shut it all the way, I just kind of leave it cracked. That's a problem for us. She would rather have a closed microwave where the light's not shining out to the rest of the kitchen. So in our marriages, we have problems, and we have to figure out solutions to these problems in order for our marriage to continue in a healthy manner. As God's people today, we have one dominant problem In our lives. Let's back up a little bit. As human beings today, we have one dominant problem in our lives that's sin. That's just as humans. But as God's people, the redeemed, those who've been saved, guess what? We still have one dominant problem that dominates all other problems in our life. Can you guess what it is? It's sin, isn't it? Let's, let's define sin. Sin, I know you know this, but just for where we're going tonight, and just to kind of get it in your mind, sin is anything that is contrary to what the Word of God commands or forbids. Sin is anything that is contrary to what the Word of God commands or forbids. Another way to put it is by defining it the way that John did in 1 John chapter 5, where he said, All unrighteousness... Is sin, lying, stealing, cheating, pride, lust. The list could go on and on and on, but they all make up this one thing that's called sin. That's our dominating problem of our lives. Can someone shout the book and chapter that sin originated Genesis 3. That's it. Do you remember what happened in Genesis 3? The serpent slithers in, comes to Eve. The serpent questions God's word. Then Eve starts to question God's word. Eve takes the bait. Eve takes the bite. Hence, sin enters the world. Oh, don't forget, Adam, he also took of the fruit of the tree. So sin, it it enters in the world. And and ever since that one moment, every single offspring that has come from Adam, which is everybody, that one single problem that began in their life, we've all inherited. Did you hear in our text, David said in uh, verse 5, I believe, he said, behold, I was shaped in iniquity. In. Uh, Sin, did my mother conceive me? I was born a sinner. It's from our very nature. You didn't wake up one day and choose it. You never picked it. You never wanted it. It's just part of who you are since you're a human being. Romans 5.12 tells us, By one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men for all, for that all have sin. Sin is a part of our nature, and no matter what we do, we cannot get rid of it. It Stinks. For lack of better words, it stinks that we can't get rid of this problem called sin. Let me ask you another question. You can go ahead and answer out loud. Does salvation take away our sin nature and ability to sin? No, it doesn't. In Romans 7, Paul testifies that Though he was a saved man, Romans chapter 6, Paul says, I am free from sin. I've been set free from it. Yet in Romans chapter 7, he says, With my mind, I yearn for the law of God. But with my flesh, I yearn for sin. Paul says, Oh, wretched man that I am. Paul had a problem. He says, What I want to do, I don't do. Paul says, What I don't want to do, that's what I do. Paul had a problem. He said, I want to serve God. I want to obey his word. But there's something in me that is something that I just, I can't get rid of. That every time I want to do right and start rowing up the river of uh, my carnality, that current just pushes against me and I sin, I fall. Again, you say, Brother Tanner, I, I think Paul was talking about His pre-conversion. Paul was talking about when he was a lost man. No, I submit to you that's not what he's talking about. In Philippians chapter 3, pre-conversion Paul said this. I was a Pharisee. I was a Jew of the Jews. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. Touching the law, I was blameless. Does that sound like someone that says... I want to serve God's law, but I just can't. Not at all. He said, touching the law, I was blameless. He was a zealous Pharisee. He didn't think anything was wrong with him. And lost people don't. So I'm convinced that even as Christians, saved by the blood of the Lamb, praise God for it, we still have a sin nature. If you don't believe me, I'll give you another example. In Galatians 2, Paul... called out a post-Pentecostal Peter. You say, why do you say that? Well, a lot of people say, they'll make the argument that uh, we don't have a sin nature because when Peter fell, Peter was presumed to be a saved man. When he fell and denied the Lord three times, that was, that was post-Pentecost. That, wasn't before he, that was before he received the Holy Ghost. Galatians chapter 2. Paul said, I withstood Peter to the face. For what? He withstood him to the face because Peter was hanging out with Gentiles, but when he saw his Jewish buddies coming, he backed off and he said, No, 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 I'm not not hanging out with them. I'm not with that group. That's the same exact sin that he failed at when he denied Christ. The sin of denial. The sin of saying, No, 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 that's not me. And Paul said, He brought a reproach to the gospel. I had to stand up to his face. That's that's post-Pentecost, Peter, we're talking about. He still had the tendency to sin. 1 John 1, 8 and 10 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. It says in verse 10, If we say that we have no sin, we call God a liar. Sin is a problem for unbelievers because... The sin in an unbeliever's life keeps them from having a relationship with Christ because their sin hasn't been paid for. If you know, what, you know what I mean? It hasn't been accounted for yet because they haven't accepted the free gift. Though Christ has already died for it, they've yet to accept the free gift of salvation. But sin for the Christian's life, it has several problems. But tonight I want to focus on one. Sin... In a believer's life, worst problem, worst consequence is the fact that it brings disunity to the relationship of God and the believer. Sin in our lives, it ruins the harmony that we have in walking with God. Will your sin ever uh, cast out your salvation? Will your sin ever uh, send you to hell once you're saved? Absolutely not. But when you walk with God and you have unconfessed sin in your life, the harmony's not there. There's disunity. Isaiah 59, 2 says, But your iniquities have separated between me and you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. And aside from that standalone verse in Isaiah 59, you saw that happen all throughout the Old Testament, didn't you? Israel, they go their own way. Unity with God is broken. Israel, they chase their own gods. Unity with God is broken. Israel, they, they keep building false idols. They worship gods of other nations. And the harmony of their relationship with God, it just deteriorates. And it's not there. And it's not because God doesn't want it to be, does it? That's not the problem at all. Every time Israel sinned, God's saying, wait, no, come back to me. Israel sins again, no, 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 repent, turn back to me. I want this relationship with us to work. I'm sorry, Israel, I can't hear your cries. I can't hear what you're wanting me to hear from you because you have sin that you haven't dealt with yet, and and I can't fellowship with that. I want you back so bad, Israel. What have I done to you? Come back to me. But it was Israel's unconfessed sin and Israel's sin that they hadn't dealt with that would not allow for them to have unity in their relationship. As New Testament believers, our relationship with God is no different. The book of 1 Corinthians is an entire book dedicated to calling people ...in that church to deal with their sin and to deal with their carnality. So many of us... ...fell in our relationship with God because we simply won't deal with our sin. So many of us let our walk with God just go to the wayside... ...because we just simply won't deal with our sin. So since sin is a big problem in the believer's life... ...we need a big solution, don't we? We need a big solution... Thankfully, God has been so gracious to give us a solution to our problem. In 1 John 1, 9, one of the greatest verses in the entire New Testament, he gives us the answer to our problem. He says if we confess our sins, he's faithful. He's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. In Psalm 51, I want to give us five practical ways that you can, or, or steps rather, that you can take in order to achieve biblical confession and the promise of forgiveness. Biblical confession and the promise of forgiveness. First of all, we must see our own sin. That's point number one. Look at verse three. My sin is ever before me. My sin is ever before me. I I saw a picture the other day um, that said to remember to encourage someone today like Nathan encouraged David. Would would you put that on the screen? David, you are the man. Now that's a funny picture. Because if you know that passage at all... That's not what David meant when, or Nathan meant when he said, David, thou art the man. Is it? Let's backtrack a little bit. Why is David writing this psalm? Why is David pouring out his heart to God? You, you can take it uh, off, Miss Chris, and I appreciate you. Why is David pouring his heart out to God? Why is he saying, God, have mercy upon me, blot out my sin? Why in the world is he saying that? Well, if you know your Bibles, Psalm 51 is the psalm of. confession after he had uh, an affair with Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel chapter number 11, if you'll remember, the Israelites are at war. David goes up on his rooftop and he sees Bathsheba showering or, or bathing and he sends for her and he brings it to him and they come together and they conceive a child. All while Bathsheba's husband is away at war. So David panics, he brings Uriah back, he tries to get him to lay with his wife so that he can cover up what had happened, and Uriah says, no, 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 no! my army, Israel, the ark, Judah, they're all sleeping in tents, there's no way I'm going into my house, it's not happening. So after two uh, refusals to do that for David, David got him drunk once and he still wouldn't do it, he sends Uriah back to war with the letter. And the letter is addressed to Joab. And the letter says, whenever you go to war, I want you to put Uriah in the very front of the battle. And then whenever things get really intense, I want everyone just to kind of back off. Uriah dies. Seems like David's unscathed. So some time passes... And God sends Nathan the prophet to David. And Nathan the prophet says, David, I want to tell you a story. There's a rich man, and there's a poor man. And this poor man, he he had one lamb that he treated like his own kid. He loved it. He cherished it. He took care of it. But then there's a rich man that he had, man, he had an abundance of herds and flocks. I'm talking an abundance, David. David's going along with the story. Nathan says, that rich man, he, he got some company. He had someone come by his house. And instead of preparing a meal from one of his own flock, he went to that poor man. And he took his one and only lamb. And David... Man, he got up in arms about this. He said, Do what? You're kidding me. Find him. Find him, and when you find him, I want you to make him give that poor man fourfold of what he took, and then I want you to kill him. And then Nathan says, David, thou art the man. David, after that, right after Nathan says that, he says, Right after Nathan says that, Nathan gives him the judgments that God is going to uh, punish David with. As soon as the judgments are done, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. I have sinned against God. He finally saw his own sin for what it is. Sin. He tried to hide it. He tried to deny it in his mind and... And maybe even tried to justify it within himself of why it wasn't sin and why it wasn't sin against God. Maybe he knew it was sin the whole time. I don't know. But I know when David or when Nathan pronounced him that he was the sinner and pronounced the judgments that God was going to rain down on his life, David said, I have sinned against the Lord. Aren't we quick to notice the sins of others before we even notice the sins of ourselves? Isn't that the truth? Man, we can point out something wrong with somebody. I don't like the way they act. I don't like the way they talk. I cannot believe she said that. I cannot believe she would post that. I cannot, I cannot. I, all the while, we hardly ever take time to recognize our own sin. But David says here in Psalm 51, 3, he said, My sin is ever before me. Do you know what he meant by that? He meant that he couldn't escape it. His sin, the knowledge of his sin, was plaguing his mind to where that's all he could think about. I try to think about something else. I try to think about my army. I try to think about my kids. I try to think, but I can't think about anything else because all I have on my mind is the fact that I have sinned against God. The first step of confession and receiving God's forgiveness in your life. It's to acknowledge, hey, I've got sin in my life. It takes some searching. And not just general sin. I'm talking specific sins. I heard of one preacher that every day he would write down his specific sins. He would pray through them. And then he would wad them up in a piece of paper and throw them down the toilet. That's what we're talking about here. Your specific sins. Not just the sin of pride or the sin of anger. Get specific with it. Call it out. Point number two. We must have godly sorrow over our sin. Not only did David realize his sin, he was broken over his sin. Look at Psalm 51, verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Godly sorrow is essential for confession. You see, we oftentimes, we see our sin as something casual, don't we? We're just, it's bad, it's horrible, oftentimes we're so used to sinning that we don't even see it for as big of a deal as it actually is. It's crazy to me that I can sin and then just go on about my day as if nothing actually happened. Daily that happens, and later I'll be like, whoa, I did that back there? and I didn't even think about it? I mean, what? That, that happens, doesn't it? But godly sorrow is... Evidently a huge part of our confession of sin. Listen to these quotes from the 1600 Puritan Thomas Watson. He said, Sorrow is a holy thing, a breaking of the heart, a rending of the inner man. Godly sorrow makes Christ precious like a doctor to a dying patient. It does not avoid Christ. It does not flee from prayer and confession. It does not enter into self-imposed moratorium." Or some kind of self-righteous penance, that moratorium word. You can tell that's a 1600 Puritan writing that. Such is a stunted view of the finality of the cross. Godly sorrow flees quickly to Christ. I love this right here. Please listen to this. Watson reminds us that godly sorrow is for the offense rather than the punishment. Did you catch that? Godly sorrow is for the offense towards God and not the punishment that God's going to hand out. True repentance means the sinner experienced brokenness because God's law has been transgressed. His love has been abused. If we are honest with ourselves, we can easily remember times when our sin was found out and we were more upset because we got caught Rather than being sorrowful that we had trampled upon our Lord's loving kindness, grace, and mercy. That's just like us, isn't it? We sin against God, God hands out his punishment, and then we're sorry about it. But that wasn't David's attitude at all. David said, Against thee, and thee only have I sinned. Look what he says in verse 4. That thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. David said, hey, I've sinned against you, God. I've done great wrong against you, God. God, do whatever you have to do to make this right. I don't care. Whatever punishment you have to hand out, however embarrassing my life you have to make, I don't care, God. I just want to be right with you. David wasn't concerned about the punishment. He was concerned because he had finally realized... ...man, I've broken God's heart. And that broke his own heart. Number three, we must admit our sin. Look at verse three. For I acknowledge my transgressions... ...and my sin is ever before me. For I acknowledge my transgressions. David acknowledged his sin to God. We must acknowledge our sins... That's what the word confess in 1 John 1, 1.9 means, to confess. It means to acknowledge. It means to say the same thing that God says about our sin, to, to kind of bring uh, illustration to it. Um, I have family, one side of my family that has struggled with drug addiction for a long, long time. When a person who is on drugs, when they decide they want to get clean... This is what I've seen to be true in my own family. What do they have to do first? They've got to acknowledge that they have a problem, don't they? They have to speak that acknowledgement out into existence. But if they think they don't have a problem, nothing will ever change. That's what David is saying here. He's saying, God, I'm not hiding my sin from you. I'm not trying to conceal it from you. I'm not trying to... Cover it up or anything like that. God, I acknowledge my sin to you. God, I am an open book. Here it is. I'm not hiding it any longer. So we must admit. We must acknowledge. We must confess our sins to God. Hey, you can't hide it anyways. Right? He knows what you did. But it's proper. It's it's actually, it's imperative. That you confess your sin in order to achieve forgiveness from the Lord and to maintain that harmonious walk with Him. Number four, and we're getting close. We must ask God's forgiveness for our sin. Look at verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And then verse 7. Purge me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. That, my friend, is the cry of a petition for forgiveness. Oh God, wash me. Oh God, blot it out. Oh God, cleanse me. Purge me. Forgive me. To forgive means to remove. I love the picture of Psalm 103 where the psalmist says that God will throw our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. That's what he's talking about here. God, forgive me in such a way that you don't remember it. God, is so far out of your sight, so far out of your mind that, Lord, all you see me as is clean and pure. I love what he says about purging with hyssop in verse 7. To be purged with hyssop, he's he's referring to blood sacrifice and a blood cleansing. 1 John, it says, But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, cleanseth us from all sin. Cleanseth us from all sin. It's a present tense verb. It means it's an ongoing thing. The blood of Jesus Christ, it doesn't just cleanse you when you come to Christ for salvation. The blood of Jesus Christ continues to cleanse you far past salvation. Every single day of your life as you walk with him and you confess your sin to him, the blood of Jesus Christ is still at work in your life. Lastly tonight, we must believe the promise that he has forgiven us. Mercy, our own guilt, our own shame. Far after we've confessed our sin and been forgiven, it'll eat you up. David believed that God heard his cry, heard his petition, and was going to forgive him. Listen to his language in verse 12. He says, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. I, I love that phrase, restore unto me the joy of thy Salvation. David was banking on it. Do you remember the joy of your salvation? Man, I was the happiest kid on earth the day I got saved. I I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe that God would take someone as wretched as I was and give me this free gift called salvation. I couldn't believe it. I was ecstatic for weeks. That's That's what David's talking about. He says, God, now that I've got this sin out of my life, I've confessed this sin to you. I've acknowledged it to you, God. I've asked you to cleanse me. I've showed you that my heart is broken, not because of the punishment, but because I have broken your heart, God. Now, God, because you've forgiven me, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. Man, wouldn't you like to have that taste back? Wouldn't you like to have that joy return to you again? Mercy. You can you can. Every single day you can have that joy. Every single day you can choose to have that joy in your life. Brother Tanner, what does it take? How can I do it? I'll do anything for some joy. Get some sin out of your life. I'm talking big in there. Search it out. Go to the depths of your heart and confess every known sin that you know to God. And then say, God, reveal more to me. And then just keep digging it away and confess it all away. Do that every single day. And that joy will return. How could you not have joy knowing that you're clean before God and that your fellowship is totally restored? How could you not have joy about that? But our problem is, is we'll see our sin for what it is. We'll acknowledge our sins. We'll have a broken heart. We'll have godly sorrow. We'll acknowledge our sins and then we'll ask God for his forgiveness. And then we'll come back to over here and we'll still have sorrow over our sin. What sense does that make? Remember your sin so you don't go back to it. But once he's forgiven you, he's forgiven you. You can have joy again. You can have peace again because you know you're right with him again. Once your sin has been forgiven, your harmony with the Lord is restored. If daily confession isn't part of your daily prayer life, it should be. It should be. Just as Bible reading is, just as prayer is, in the Lord's prayer, confession is part of the Lord's prayer. He says, when you pray, pray like this. Confession's part of that. So if confession isn't a part of your daily disciplines and your spiritual life, Add it to it. Every morning. I'm serious. It'll, it'll change your day. Confess your sins to God every morning. Go into the rest of your day clean knowing my walk with God is harmonious. If you sin at 2 o'clock, confess your sin at 2 Keep that relationship harmonious. Number one, see your sin for what it is. Number two, have sorrow over your sin Number three, acknowledge your sin. Number four, ask God to forgive you of your sin. And then number five, believe that God has forgiven you and accept his forgiveness. As the musicians come, tonight I I, I just wanted to help your spiritual walk. I just wanted to help you out spiritually. Because I know sin is something we battle every single day. Every single day. So I hope you got something tonight. I hope this is something that you can put into practice tomorrow and something we can even put into practice tonight. So if you would stand with me.